Happy Friday, guys, and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Dubs. I'm your host, Bill T. Another podcast coming at you guys for this week, and we go down a little bit of history. We've got Bob Layton, the son of Lee Layton, who lives in Las Vegas. He's been a longtime resident of Nevada and been in off-road racing for a long time, but also grew up as one of the more active uh, Layton family members involved with his dad, with an early career working at Revmaster, tearing down motors, and then miscellaneous jobs throughout the VW world on into his own off-road racing career. Lots of good information, a little bit of history, a little bit of personal history about his dad. So it's a great podcast, uh, good listen, and lots of good information on this podcast. So I wanted to give a shout out to Volks Gear. They hit me up on Instagram, and it's a mom and pop business. Business. They make some VW clothing and wanted me to give them a shout out on the podcast. Just some people putting together uh, a little business or trying to make happen. So if you guys want to check them out there on Instagram, Volkswagen, they got some pretty cool shirts and stuff that you can order from their website. Uh, I think the website's volksgear.com. But uh, check them out. They've got a pretty cool variety of uh, sweatshirts and T-shirts and whatnot. So uh, always try to support those that are enthusiasts in the scene. They've got a couple of Volkswagens and looks like they're trying to do it big. So let's uh, if you guys want to help them out, help out the community, go check out Volks Gear and uh, follow them on Instagram and let them know that Let's Talk Dub sent you. Shout out this week to Kent Luttrell. He sent me a message on uh, the contact form on the website. It said, Bill was on the podcast, hearing your concerns about some of your guests not providing products in a timely manner. Just wanted to recognize vintage air-cooled parts. After hearing them on your podcast, I contacted them and purchased a nice steering wheel for my Super uh, Vert and got it quickly. And it, it fits and looks great. Thanks for what you do. And uh, as a retired prison guard in NorCal, he enjoyed my Mexican prison podcast. So that's shout out for my man, Ken Luttrell. Another shout out for Scott Young. Scott Young's out of, uh, he's out of Australia. Love your shows. They've got me through some dark, crappy days. They always give me a little lift. So he's got a nice collection of Volkswagens, a 55 single cab. 56 single cab 59 panel 65 beetle and a 65 type 34 so you know he's classy he says he's launched a volkswagen festival here there in australia based on similar similar to european shows or trade shows food trucks and all that stuff and i wanted me to give him a little shout out here on the podcast and he wants to do a podcast so i'll reach out to him and give him some insight on putting together his own little vw podcast over there in australia good luck to you scott another shout out this week goes to michael hartman out of fairmont west virginia Michael Hartman picked up a sticker pack and a new podcast t-shirt supported us. And he says, love the podcast. Thanks for putting it out. I just found out about this when Eric Cold gave you a shout out and said, see you guys at one crazy weekend. And now I'm 40 episodes in and he loves the info, man. So you know what? We appreciate you guys checking us out. And uh, if you like the podcast, share the podcast with some of your VW friends. They may not know how much they're going to like the podcast, but it's definitely enjoyable to do. And I enjoy tracking down the history like we do on this particular podcast. If you want to support the podcast, go to letstalkdubs.com. Click on the merch page and pick up some merch and support your boy. In the next couple days, I'm going to get set up some of the Let's Talk Dubs One Crazy Weekend shirts. Now, these are shirts that were designed by Steve Nazar. I'm going to have available they're not dated so there's no show date nor sponsor logos on the shirt it's just more of a cool shirt design that's vw's and vegas and it's a rad shirt so you guys want to get one you go to letstalkdubs.com i've got limited sizes available so i'm going to put my current inventory on there if you see something on there and it's not there once i get a request with enough shirts man i'll say some of the shirts unfortunately they're they're high quality shirts and they're digitally printed so you guys want a good shirt man it's a good shirt so i don't want to bring any junk to the market anyway guys appreciate you listening this week's rad podcast we talk to Bob Layton, the son of Lee Layton, and we talk about 
old school racing, some off-road history, and a lot of other things that are near and dear to him. Without any further ado, guys, let's get into it this week with Bob Layton on Let's Talk Dubs. You probably don't know that there's a new Volkswagen out that doesn't look like a Volkswagen. Okay, everybody. So on today's show, I've got a special guest. He's a uh, Las Vegas local. He's been in been in town for quite a few years, but that's not where he comes from. Um, the name I know is familiar to you guys. And recently, you heard that I picked up uh, one of Lee Layton's supercharged engines that he was running in the Revmaster car back in the day. And on today's show, I've got Bob Layton. He comes out of Las Vegas, Nevada. It's Lee Layton's son, and Bob's got quite a bit, quite a big racing history on his own but uh bob welcome to the show hi how are you thanks for bringing me in yeah no problem so we've been talking a little bit back and forth and obviously i've picked up your dad's your dad's engine and the way we start the podcast because it's a vw centered podcast we talk about what's your vw story and how you get into volkswagens but i think with yours i'm going to start with what's your first vw memory obviously because your dad is real famous in the origins of racing for volkswagens and all this stuff what is your first memory of coming into the volkswagen world well we'll take you back just a shade uh, i remember coming home from the gas station one night about 11 o'clock and i didn't get to go to orange county raceway with my father and they were back in the jouster into the garage and it was only half there they had wrecked it, tore it all to pieces, and my brother was backing in the DeSoto with the Redmaster car on it, and I thought, what happened to Pop? And uh, then Dad come out, he's all bandaged up, he's showing me all of his wounds, you know, that sort of thing. And how old are you at this time? Oh, God, I was in a, working at a gas station. I was probably 16 and a half. Oh, really? So you're 16, 16 years old, and Dad's come back from the drag races with the cars totaled. And uh, and we've got some some issues, and that's the Impy Jouster. Is that that car? Yes, it was. So uh -huh. your dad now now your dad's history for from what you know your perspective. What's your dad's story in kind of a you know in, in overview for some of those that may not know who Lee Layton is because we want to pay some tribute to your to your old man what he's done and and really what he because he was responsible for quite a bit of the racing technology that took place back in those days what what is your dad's story from your perspective well to start with uh he looked he liked to work you yeah. know and he, he always had a bunch of drag racing friends that hung around the gas station when he was working at the texco gas station now he worked at the texco gas he, station he ran it he ran the texco gas station and the whole town was full of drag racers and motorcycle racers and stuff and they all graduated over to colton to race that drag strip and they had a flagman. That was way before a Christmas tree. Right. And that was exciting. We'd all sit in the back of the truck and watch the old top fuel dragsters and, you know, watch the flagman go through all of his crazy dotties out there at the line, bringing people up from the staging area. And it was it was exciting for us to be 
like young kids and you know now what's interesting to me is is with your dad being uh and what part where is this at exactly where this, this is colton california colton california yeah, where we grew up which is kind of bloomington fontana so in the fontana out in riverside area correct like in yes. that norco riverside area now with all the drag racing going on what makes your dad gravitate to volkswagens working with mr lowry and the Volkswagen people over there at MP. So because he was working over there, because you know when I talked to when I talked to Joe, Joe says Lee's one of the first guys that I hired over there when we were started doing the engine development and all before they even got into that. Kind of brought him in before all that started because your dad was there in the beginning when MP really starts taking off and all that. So and are we talking about Joe Vatone or Joe Horvath now? Well, we're talking about Joe Horvath because Joe Horvath was one of the first. It was Joe Horvath, Plaxo, and then your dad. And then a few other people start coming on board at at Econo Motors before there's Impy. Okay, well, I didn't know Harvath worked there. Yeah, but I know that uh, all the other names you mentioned. Yeah, they were all there. It's quite a crew. And now your dad, as from a from a job standpoint, starts working over there at Impy. Is that is that where he's at? Is he working there, or is he still working at? doing the Texco, but racing for MP. How does the MP well, connection Well, he in? started working over there, putting on fancy steering wheels and fancy side mirrors and all this, that, and the other, and the mm -hmm. little trays underneath the dash and everything. And, and they just graduated him on up because Joe liked him. Then they'd go to the racing shows and tow off across the country with Dino and that Volkswagen truck with a inch picture on the back of it. Yeah. And and your perspective of, of kind of where you start coming into it on your own is – the first thing you remember is your dad getting banged up in the jouster and all this good stuff. Now, how, how do you, how do you kind of experience into your own car thing that's going on there? Well, he just kind of started putting me in touch with people as I was getting out of high school to work mm -hmm. for, you know, I worked and, in Fortune exhaust and I'm working around Volkswagens and stuff, but my passion pretty much was working on on houses. You know, I didn't care to get greasy, but I eventually kind of got steered into it because I would go everywhere and help out and I knew how to fix things. So you were in construction. We're kind of going down the construction road. The construction thing starts to taper off. And so your dad's like, here, I can get you a job over here at Fortune. Did your dad help you get the job at Fortune Exhaust? Yeah. Uh -huh. Sure did. Now, what were you doing over there? Well, I started out cleaning pipe. Then a little bit later, I started bending pipe. Then a little bit later, I started welding pipe on the on the exhaust systems and all that? Oh, yeah, the 14 exhaust. He was the only one making exhaust systems back in the day. And as each time I moved up in the in the field over there for Mr. Sanchez, I never did get a raise. So I'm working, I'm, bend, I'm cleaning pipe, I'm bending pipe, and I'm welding pipe, and I'm still making $1.65 an hour. $1.65 an hour. Oh, yeah, we're way back in the day. And John Rue, who everybody knows, he's been in the Volkswagen business forever. He was my boss. And he said, well, I don't know, you could talk to Talk to Robert about it. He says, a good friends with your dad. So that night at the dinner table, we had a little discussion about what was going out there at Fortune Exhaust. And he said, well, you want to go to work to Webmaster? I said, when do you want me to go to work at Webmaster? He goes, how's Monday morning sound? I go, I'll be there. And who's this? Who got you a job at Webmaster? That was my dad. So your dad gets you a job because obviously he has a relationship, long-time relationship with Joe Horvath. So now you go work for Revmaster. Where is Rev? How big is Rev? Like, what's your impression of Revmaster? You walk in the door as a new employee and set the scene for us. What's it look like in there? Oh, it's a it's a large building, and I understand they're building thirty six horses and hopped up forty horses for Montgomery Wards, and they put me in the back the first day putting cylinders on, heads on, 
uh, rocker arms and push rods and doing a you know, number of other things, torquing the heads down and adjusting the valves and stuff. So that was on a group of four engines. Then we'd move it up the next way and somebody'd put the sheet metal on it. My dad was putting on putting the, the bottom ends together. So you're top ending the motors out, pistons, cylinders, all that stuff, torquing the heads. And that's like and you've got enough experience to right out of the gate your first day. They, they, they're like, hey, Bob, you know how to do this stuff. Go ahead and start putting the top ends on these things. Oh, yeah. I'd been hanging out at Pop Shop, seeing what was going on over there. Yeah. You know, and we always thought, how could this little motor go so damn fast with one of these cars? Well, they didn't weigh nothing. Right. You know, you got a Plymouth over here with a Hemi in it. And it's not as fast as the Volkswagen. <laughs> yeah. Everyone, I mean, I was at the Schley's Museum this weekend, and they – their big thing that they kept talking about was lightening everything as much as they can. You know, they, they were showing me, you know, can, uh, uh, they'd use the 36 horse cam gears because they were made of magnesium. They weren't, they, they weren't the heavy aluminum and they were made of magnesium. And then they would take even the, the crankshaft gears. They drill the ca- crankshaft gears. They would, they would machine the lifters to be thinner, smaller. You know, they, they were, their whole thing was take the weight out of it, which was really the advantage the VW had in the drag racing circuit was they were a lighter car, weighed over their end, got traction real quick, and they just eat up a lot of track before those big V8s would get out of there and, and really throw those guys off. So you come into working for Revmaster, and now you were making a buck sixty-five an hour over there at Fortune. How much they paying you over at Revmaster when you start over there? Oh God, <laughs> two I, bucks? <laughs> no, I think it. Well, I get. Let's just put it this way: I get paid every two weeks, and I can pretty much spend all that money on a date on Friday night. Well, I think everybody, every young you man, know, does that. <laughs> well, I, I don't. I don't remember what Joe was paying me, but uh, I stayed there for quite a little while, and I met a whole lot of nice people over there. So you stayed there building long blocking motors over there. I mean, how many motors did you do in a day over there, Revmaster? Uh, we put uh, probably probably sixteen. Sixteen engines a day, you'd top out. Yeah. So they're doing just twelve on a on a normal day, probably sixteen on a heavy duty day. And how many people are working there in that facility? Oh gosh, maybe fifty. Fifty people. Yeah. I mean, they're rebuilding that many motors. These these are all being rebuilt. These are remanufactured motors well yeah some of the stuff was leaving the country he built uh, he had other things going on also mm-hmm. you know he had the guys in there that were doing the cases he had guys in there that were cleaning everything up and sandblasting everything else it wasn't a rinky-dink operation then they had a sales room up in the front where probably they had ladies up there selling stuff from other areas so they had a re like a retail sales room you could walk in there and just buy a motor right from Revmaster, or they kind of did contract stuff i don't remember that part at all i i was in the back you're just in the back grinding away putting together long blocks that's where all the action was yeah right and so what where do you top out over there as far as position you just stayed doing that until you found something else or what do you do oh i just pretty much yeah i hung out doing that for a while and then went and got in the in the in the carver's union but there was a couple things I did over there that they had a lot of respect for. Some, a lot of the motors were coming back, mm-hmm. you know, because they weren't putting a distributor in them and people turn them backwards and drive the gear out that moves the distributor around. I said, we got to start selling these things with a distributor in them. Well, you know, there was lots of reasons why it didn't happen. But uh, no matter how many th- pieces of tape or articles you could put on this motor, somebody would turn in the wrong direction. And bump that distributor drive gear up and out. And then they then they try to drive it back down in there to knock the uh, brass gear all to hell. Right. You know, and right immediately it'd ruin it, you know, and all the shavings go in the motor. But, uh, yeah, that's... Uh, 
we're taking ourselves a long ways back there. Yeah, and and at this time, how old are you back working at Revmaster? 17, 18 years no, old? No, I was out of high school then, I believe. Yeah, it's probably 18. 18 years old. 19. And, and you work for Revmaster for how long? Oh, eight months probably. And go, and then you go to the Carpenters Union. Now at this time, what do you? What's your daily driver that you're driving? You're driving a Volkswagen, or are you you driving a Mopar? No, I'm driving a truck. Yeah, probably a Dodge truck. So driving a pickup truck, and then you end up going to the Carpenters Union. So you kind of fade away from being the hands-on VW guy at that point. Now, when do you start? Obviously, motorsports is in your your family blood. What do you start getting into? What's the first thing you start racing? Oh, gosh. We had a – this is going to probably – would probably make my mother turn over in her grave. When I was 15 and a half years old, my dad asked me if I wanted to make a, a pass at Orange County International Race Car in this 37 Plymouth we had with a Chrysler motor in it, three carburetors and headers, and this, that, and the other. And he's telling me how to cut the light and how to do this and stage the car and everything else. He says, you're not even listening. I said, this helmet is big, Dad. I got to get a couple of grease rags in here so it won't spin around in my head. So I pull up at Orange County, and I line up against an Angula with injectors and everything sticking out of it. And this old Plymouth that we had to run like 1390s. And I tell you what, I forgot about playing baseball after that. I wanted yeah. to go drag racing. Really? And then eventually ended up where I would go to all the Volkswagen bug-ins and help him with this and help him with that. And uh, just got the bug where I would go either way. I'll drive a Mopar. I'll drive a Volkswagen, but you got to have me in an off-road car at least twice a month. Yeah, I love a dirt road. So you so you started racing with the old man, like pit crewing and stuff for him at all the bug ins and all that. Yeah. Now, do you any any significant stories you remember with the old man as far as back in the back in the bug in days? Anything that stands out to you? Like it was something where you thought, like, did you know that your dad was one of the guys in the forefront of the racing thing back then? I mean, did or it was just that's dad. He is whoever he is. No, you know, way back I heard my dad was talking to somebody. It was either Rupert or Hayes, and they wanted him to drive a funny car. Mm-hmm. Funny cars were just getting popular. Right. And my dad was talking to my mom about it, and she goes, well, what happens to you if you get hurt? And he says, well, that's the decision I'm having to come to terms to grips with, right? you know, losing my family. You know, it'd be like somebody wanted to go play big league baseball and they don't want to be running all around the country. So we never did entertain that idea of driving somebody's funny car. Right. Back then, funny cars were only going 180 and a quarter mile. And he went, what, 130 in the Scorpion. Yeah. But here's one thing I'll tell you. We came back from that drag race at Orange County many years ago. He's pulling that Scorpion on a raggedy old single axle trailer down 395 by Norton, by the Air Force Base out there, March Air Force Base. Yeah. And Jim Meyer starts throwing ladyfingers out of his 66 VW, right? And they're lighting off in front of my dad's 36 Ford truck with that big old Hemi engine in it. And I look in the mirror, and here he comes with that push bar. Oh, really? He put that push bar on the back of Jim's 66 Volkswagen. He had that thing clear to the floor, and the speedometer was down by the needle that works the blinker switch. Right. And he was pushing Jim. Pulling the Redmaster Dragster, and I'm sitting in there. Jeff's going. He's got to foot on the brake as hard as he could put it on, and nothing's happening. And you're riding with Jim in the car. I'm riding with Jim in the '66 oh, Volkswagen, all low to the ground, you know, in the front. It's going all over the place. But he had him with that push bar, and he had him where he wanted him. Yeah. yeah. And it, once we got back to Redmaster and started loading everything, Jim was still shaking. Yeah. You know? I, I'd imagine to get that big old Hemi behind you, just pushing you down the road. Uh, That's a little. He scary. had that truck for years. Yeah. My brother has it now. Still has it, huh? Mm-hmm. Now your your dad was uh, he he. 
I mean, he was in the game for a long time. I mean, I was, we're just looking at a an issue of, I mean, he started racing in the early 60s, right? I'd say if not late 50s. And uh, he, we have an issue here of, of Hot VWs that's uh, June 85. So 20 years later, he's still in the magazine with some uh, some of these shots of some of these cars and stuff like that. That are you know he's showing they're they're showing off the the latent collection because obviously your dad had quite an impact on the VW world. Um, when you're with him, yeah, and here's a shot of your car, you know your off road car back then. So this is kind of the time that you're out there off road racing. When's the first time that you you go from the asphalt to the dirt? What's the first time you do that, and and where's that at? Well, <clears throat> there was a guy. It used to work at Autocraft, or I believe it was Autocraft, over there in San Bernardino. I, I want to say Bill Mao. He wanted to go do some off-road racing at Barstow. Mm -hmm. So one day we got to talking. I said, hey, I can get a motor, and I can get a tranny, and we'll split the bills, and we'll go run that firecracker race at Barstow. He said, you'd do that? And I go, I'm dying to get in one of these cars. Right. You know, and he had a high jumper. It was a mm -hmm. swing axle. But he had all the right stuff on it. Had the the thing rear brakes on and all that. So we put a package together, and then when the when the race came about, he didn't want to start. He said, "No." He goes, "I want you to start. I'm too nervous." And I said, "Okay." So I'm going like crazy around there, and the wind's blowing really hard up in Barstow. And this is before I even owned a fire suit, right? And I'm going up the top of this mountain, and I go down the other side of this mountain, and the car's trying to do this, and I threw it into a slide, and it just started rolling over, and it landed upside down. So your first time in an off-road car, first you rolled it? First time in an off-road car. <laughs> and I thought, well, I sh this shouldn't have happened. I had it in a good slide. I had it under control. And I'm laying there upside down, and I get a charley horse in my left leg. And I'm holding myself back in the seat, upside down. There's a bunch of guys standing around out there. goes, you okay? You okay? And I go, yeah, I got a charley horse. And they said, there's gas running out of this thing. I was out of that car quicker than anything. Yeah. And I stand in there. I'm looking at it. And I just roll it back up on the wheels. And the thing hub broke in the center. It was oh, a gotcha. Brazilian one. Yeah. And that's what broke and flipped me over. The axle stuck in the ground and just pole vaulted me. I walk around. I look at the other thing on the other side, the hub. It's ready to break. And I thought, well, I guess we won't use these in off-road racing anymore. Right. But, I mean, we talked about it. This guy and I, we had so much fun. He wanted to do some more. My next investment was a Simpson fire suit. Yeah. So you got yourself a fire suit. So what year is this that you start racing? Oh, God. This had to be. I'm not good at remembering back on a lot of that stuff. It had to be. But, I mean, this is the 70s when you start off-road racing? Probably. 77, 78. 77, 78. So, and who is it you're running with in that car? I believe his name was Bill Mao. Bill Mao in the car. I, I can't guarantee that. And the, it was and a the, high jumper. And it was a high jumper, and the first race was a Barstow, the Barstow 250, you said? Yeah, I believe it was. And I believe he, were, I believe he worked at, what did I say, Auto House? I mm -hmm. think that's where he worked at was at Auto House. Yeah, he said Auto Craft, but yeah. it might be Auto House. Yeah, because, it was in San Bernardino. Yeah. And... So then you decide I'm getting my own car and I'm gonna do I'm gonna do this myself. What's your dad think about you doing that? And as your dad at this time is he building off road race engines for people? Or oh he yeah, just... he's building the heck out of them. And there's a lot of differences between an off road motor and a drag motor. I mean, you don't want no thin lifters and this, that, and the other in, a, in an off road motor. Oh yeah, they you, get a beating. Yeah, you want to, you're building something to last. Yeah, so yeah. your dad building off road engines is kind of changing the method as to how he builds the drag motors, right? Drag motors just gotta last for a quarter mile. Well, they still lasted quite a little while. Once one of them starts to go apart, though, they're done. Right. You can't tell when they're done, they're done, because you're sitting up in front. Mm -hmm. When they blow, they blow. But 
he had a he had a rapport with tons of people in the off-road racing world. And this guy named Wally Prankers gave him a Funko SS2 for near nothing. Yeah. And that was our first off-road race car. And I got involved with that with my little brother. And then Dave Wallace and I started racing it. And next thing, we had a nicer Funko. And then we had a race go. And then I built that thing you just looked at in that magazine. Of course, that was years later. Yeah. And when you're racing the off-road circuit, like who are the guys to beat? And what class are you racing? We raced in class nine which was the biggest class it had the biggest paybacks now why was class nine so popular well they were reasonable yeah you had a 1600 cc motor no it was a 1200 cc motor and uh you could only get so much done to them you didn't have to buy trick carburetors you didn't have dual port heads you didn't have anything you can so it was a stock 1200 compression. pretty much well they made about 60 horsepower 58 horsepower but i mean cranked up but stock all manifolds yeah. and carbs and exactly. all that stuff so you, it really came down to like how, how much you could tweak that motor and still have it be reliable and the driver is really what it came down to. Exactly. And another thing was <clears throat> we had history in the world. You know, you got to have, if you want to go fast, you got to have a good gear ratio. Right. You got to have a, a transmission that'll pull those gears. You got to have the tires. You got to have the brakes. Everything has to be in order. So, what kind of stuff was now that you start racing? Your dad's been building racing motors, but now that you start racing, what kind of. What kind of stuff are you translating from like the drag race world like you're talking about? What, what do you translate from there, the knowledge you gain there, and move into off-road racing? Is it stuff people aren't doing yet that you guys kind of get a little bit of an advantage? Well, I always had a good reputation of cutting a light. Mm -hmm. Real good reputation of cutting a light. And people used to say to me, what, what's so much fun about off-road racing? I said, you're cutting a light for 400 miles. Right. The minute you quit cutting the light, you're going to hit a rock. You're going to hit a tree. You're going to ride around on the right front wheel for 50 yards. Yeah. And that wakes you up again. So then you got to start cutting the light. But uh, that's what I used to tell people about drag racing. What's so much fun? I go, cutting the light. Yeah. You know, the rest of it's secondary. You miss a gear, you're done. Yeah. But if you cut the light, you got a an advantage. And did, did you ever run any of your dad's drag cars? Oh, I drove the red car a lot. So you drove the red car. What's the fastest car, fastest time in the red car? I think. He actually went the quickest in it, 1065. And for people that don't know the red car, what what is the red car? It's a 19... It's a 56 it's a, little window. 1956 oval. And that car was... I mean, it was, it was a purpose-built drag car that your dad had for how long? Many years. And now that car, today, that car is in... Is it in France, that car? I thought it was in Bel uh, Ireland. It might, oh, it might be at Russell, in Russell Ritchie's collection. Yes, yeah. that's exactly where it's at. He brought it over for the bug-in. Yeah, and so that that car still exists to this day. Who ended up with it after your dad had it? Tim's. So Steve Tim's ends up with it? Correct. And then Steve Tim starts to race it for a while, right? I'm not sure. We and, were busy in off-road racing. I don't know. The car just kind of disappeared, and then he told me it went to... What was the name of the car? It was VW Racing Engines. Oh, okay. That's Lee Layton's VW Racing Engines. Looked just like the one on the cover of that. So VW Trans. is this car, is this a remake of that car or that's the actual car? That's the original car. So that's the original car and your dad gets rid of it. So he still got an 85 and sells it later, probably in late 80s. Realize he's not, it's not really a, a competitive car anymore. It's more the car that he's had for 20 some years. So he's like, ah, we're doing different things. So he just decides to sell it or what? Oh, that red car? Yeah. Well, he had a, he had a health issue mm -hmm. and uh, our whole family's had a bout with it. Mm -hmm. called prostate cancer yeah and that car got sold so he could take care of his prostate cancer and i had no clue what was going on i would have given him the money we wouldn't even had to sell the damn car right he made me count the money when steve tim's come and bought it and all in a big old paper bag 
What's a car like that sell for back in the day? It was cheap. Yeah. Way too cheap. Well, I'm sure it's. I'm sure it's especially. I, I don't even want to make any mentions. I'd love to know what Richie paid for the three cars that he bought. Yeah. I can't find it out. Well, who knows? I mean, sometimes it it it, it all depends. You know, you're talking about a million dollar Cobra sold. Carol Shelby offered it up to everybody there that worked there for 500 bucks. Nobody wanted it, so they just kind of pitched it. You know, and those cars are worth a million bucks today. So I guess it all depends on the time, the relevance, and everything has sentimental. Like things that my dad gave away for nothing probably have sentimental value to me that I wish he'd have kept versus like what the actual value was in the contemporary time back then. So I think there's there's always some of that relevance in respect to what things what things are worth versus what they sell for. Now, go ahead. Am I coming in? Yeah, you're perfect. You're okay. you're great. You're great. Super. So, yeah, but that car had a fiberglass front end. It had fiberglass doors on. It had Lexan windows in it. All the back was fiberglass. You know, the fenders and the jet mm-hmm. and everything else. I think that car and it didn't have a Volkswagen front end on it. it. Had a torsion bar front end. If I'm not mistaken, weighed about 970 pounds with nobody in it, That's and a- it went straight as an arrow. That was a light car. It had a Porsche transmission in it. They were just like shifted like buttermilk. And so you guys had run the Porsche Trans, the Porsche five speed. Four. So you ran a Porsche five speed. Out of what car? Was it a three fifty six car? Or is My something brother was the best transmission builder there was. Oh really? He could come up with stuff. Yeah, he would come up with stuff. Every now and again, he changed the gears on me without telling me. Yeah. I tell my dad. He said, "I said I went over there that race at Elsinore. I couldn't pull anybody off the corners." I said, what'd you do to the motor? He said, your little brother changed the transmission gears in second. Hmm. I said, oh, okay. So you can imagine what the talks would be like in our shop. Oh, yeah, I can we imagine. We could put the Tuttles to shame on a lot of conversations. Yeah. A, lot, a lot of blowouts <laughs> with the family, huh? Oh, gosh. I mean, it's just the way the Leightons are sometimes. And now your, your, bro- so your brother built transmissions. Did he, did, and I don't know your brother's sister, did he end up having his own shop or he just worked oh, yeah. for the old man? Oh, yeah. What was the name of your brother's shop? Uh, my God, Mike Layton, Racing Transaxles, I think. Yeah. He did all kinds of stuff. He was way bigger than Daniel. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Back in the day, every, you know, when you go to my dad's shop, there'd be 15 or 18 22 40s and 2180s with zenus on them mm-hmm. after a race they would all come down from vegas before vegas started doing their own stuff and you go to my brother's shop and all them same transmissions would be there for those motors so they'd all bring them down drop them all off and then come back and pick them up now how long does your brother build trannies for 15 years and then what's he decided to do after that uh you know divorce yeah thanks my dad sent him to al Kondrobi. The German transmission builder in L.A. He oh, built, really? He taught a lot of people how to build trannies. Yeah. And Mikey has said as years come along, he'd see transmissions come through his shop, you know, with nylon cages and this and that mm-hmm. and everything else that couldn't last in off-road racing because they get punished. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That thing's, that thing's going through a beating. And then you know? another problem we had a little later on is using synthetic oils. Well, synthetic oils, it's, it's interesting because my thought process on synthetic oils is because the, the oil is designed to transfer heat from the metal to cool the metal down, and the the oil is used to displace the heat. Now, synthetic oil, which can't, which won't retain heat, would make the engine, in my opinion, actually run hotter. You know, so you know it. You have to have another method or means of cooling. And I noticed that once Porsche went to water cooled engines, they switched to synthetic oils. And I think that may have something to do with it. Now, I do have some previous podcast guests that are thermodynamics experts, but that's just my two cents from the from the curb. But what was your experience with synthetic oils? Yeah, 
It didn't work. Yeah. In a 2240 or actually a 12 motor with 14 to 1 compression and everything else. And as hot as they get. Yeah. Uh, it, it just, there was problems with them. And in the transmissions, we couldn't use them at all because the transmissions get so hot, they lose all their clearances. And right away, four or five uh, guys lost transmissions and lost motors in one race, like at Barstow in July. It's 115 degrees up there. Yeah, it's You better hot. come with all the right stuff, you know. And then we start having discussions. And Mike says, well, I talked to all those guys into changing to my oil, which was Neo. Neo. Way back in the, remember, way back in the day, they had Neo. Mm -hmm. So there was another long discussion there. And just to say a few things about synthetic oil, I stood in Ontario Motor Speedway's paddock and watch it put Kendall GT racing oil in the Mobile One IndyCar Special and warm it with a wand. Really? And from that day forward, I told my dad, I said, you can't believe anything you see on TV. Right. You got to see it in person. Because they're, they're, they're running uh, Kendall oil in a Mobile One car? And it's not synthetic. Yeah. That's, uh, I hope I'm not going to get anybody to come around here and shoot at me when we leave here. <laughs> I'm going to make you walk out front, Bill. <laughs> so, with that, with that, I mean, you have you end up having an off-road racing career for how long? How long are you racing off-road for? 25 years. And what uh, what what gets you? To, what's a, what's the classes that you run throughout your history of running off-road? Uh, I drove my brother's five car a little bit at Barstow one time. I drove nine cars. When they were 1,200 cc's, we had a 10 car, which had a 1641 motor in it that we used to win races overall with it. You know, you meet the big guys. Right. It's some of the races. I mean, it wasn't much good down in Mexico. It was only go 100, 108. Yeah, that makes for, makes for but, a long uh, day. I, I ran a couple of one cars, but I always had transmission problems because the motors were too powerful. And actually, the, the 10 car was more fun because you couldn't break the transmissions as easy. So I like to stay in that class. And it was very competitive. And really large, so the paychecks were were big, and and really, I mean, like right now we see class 11s getting super popular right now, which is basically the stock Beetle chassis lifted, and everything else is kind of stock with modifications for off road racing, removing the windows and a little bit of lightening the car and things to that extent. Um, your favorite class of all of them is a class 10. Yep. And why now the class 10 is because the car is pretty pretty well built where you're going to make it through the race and it's more about driving well you know class 10 to get 40 cars in it yeah you know and and all of them would be good a lot of times pop would say hey you want to get a purse going on anybody who wants to put in 100 bucks at the end of the race the highest paid finisher will take all these hundred dollar bills and they'd let the promoter carry the hundred dollar bill a lot of guys that we all had fun with got along with and uh, now the class 10 what was the limitations on class 10 back then any kind of car you wanted as far as a buggy uh-huh yeah, 1,640 cc's back okay. in the day. So 1,640 cc was the limit on the motor. I think in the two-seaters, don't quote me on this, I believe they could have two carburetors. Yeah. But they were still 1,641. Now, with your experience in off-road racing, what makes you – what's your dad doing this time? Because your dad had some health issues, sold the car, you're saying, in the – now, your dad passed away what year? Two. 2014 and up until 2014 he was still actively building motors doing that kind of stuff or oh what, yeah what was he, he doing? was still driving that old great little window we had yeah off and on at irwindale yeah you know they were having a lot of trouble with motors and this that and the other but we could get him in there and get him bolted down he wanted to drive it and what was he running in that car oh that was eighth mile i think he ran some like mid sevens i believe yeah 
just having a good time running well, that thing. Well, the car wasn't geared right. And I, I don't really know what to say about that. But he had he drove that car up for the longest time, and then he didn't have it. After we got that red car sold, they got that health issue fixed. Yeah. So he could we we could have kept it, you know. And he always used to say, "God, I wish I still had that red car." And I go, "You want to build another one? Nah, it takes too much time." You know. That's I mean that that's a lot of work to get that car and to get that car dialed in where it goes dead straight and it's that light. That's a lot of that's a lot of work and refinement gone into that, you know, going into that over, especially over the years, you know, as he's, as he started building that car and transitioning to where it's at. I mean, just at the, like I said, it was at the Schley's this weekend and we just went by every different type of wheel that they used from whatever was available to whatever they had to getting, you know, they would get super thin wheels made that were just for going straight and you couldn't turn. I'm like, you turn with any kind of torque on those wheels and they're going to taco in two seconds, but they'd go thin or aluminum. I mean, they, they would do everything that they could to kind of lighten up those cars, you know? So it's interesting that you have a car this long that you're just, the platform is good and then it's just up to the motor. So the supercharged engine, is how much history do you know about the supercharged engine? That motor's been passed around, pulled it down, but, rebrand. We, we were the last ones to rerun it. I don't think it was any bigger ever than 1890 cc's yeah i think that i think what i read was like a 1936 or something like that something to that that effect of it's small it's a sub two liter for sure now did you ever have like do you know where the supercharger and whatnot that's on it came from like what because when i talk i was speaking to joe i told joe this weekend i called him on my way to california and talked to joe told him that you said hello and uh we joe horvath we talked for a little bit and he said uh he said that uh, as we were talking, um, I said, where'd the supercharger come from? He says, well, we got that supercharger from an aerospace place and they were using it to vacuum air out of a room is what it was for. It wasn't really built for a car. And then we ended up adapting it to put on that, the, the sidewinder, which was pretty interesting. I thought, you know, that, that was a, a neat thing to learn because I'm trying to figure out like what car did it come from factoring? It's not from a vehicle. They actually used it to to vacuum air out of a room. Well, that's uh, completely in, news to me. In, in I know where the carburetors came from. Yes, and where did the carburetors come from? <laughs> no, I think they came from John Bradley. No, wait a minute. We had those same type of carburetors on that 37, uh, that's what say, are they, 37 Plymouth. They, <laughs> he still, when my dad passed away, he had five or six boxes of those carburetors. Yeah. You know? And I see that that one, oh gosh, who's that old company back there in the Midwest that sells all that hearted flathead stuff? He's still selling Stromberg's brand new. I don't know where he's getting them. Uh, the, yeah, the, I mean, they, they make them new. Now, the last time that motor was built, I don't think it's ran since since it's been gone through. Who who went through that motor last time? I'm sure we did over there in the back back of the shop, my dad's house. And so as far as um, the motor being changed, how many changes from its original configuration is it? Is it pretty much still the same motor it was? I don't know. I, I was talking to you about that once already. I don't know about the mag being on it when we were racing it. I do have pictures around the house over there, but I really haven't sit down and dug through. Yeah, them, I've know? got I've got a picture that I pulled up of the car lining up at the drag strip, and it's got a magneto in it, which I have a magneto for it. But I'm trying to make it as kind of uh, similar to the way it was in that in that car. I know that uh, Horvath still has the nose for the Scorpion uh, somewhere, or. Uh, Chris has it somewhere in his collection, which is, uh, I think, all that's maybe all that remains of that. But, you know, the the picture that I have, I'm trying to find it here to show you, but it shows a it shows that supercharger on the engine. 
and it does show it's got kind of a magneto because I was speaking with someone they said that it came with uh, different heads and I reached out to Joe and Joe said well we built a bunch of through Revmaster they would build the aftermarket motors which were the Denzel engines right there was the Denzels and the Okrasis and you know talking to Joe on the phone he said well the Okrasa heads sucked and the Denzel heads were better and I said well you know I don't think somebody would make two separate chrome manifolds like this he says no I think when we supercharged it we changed it to the dual port heads instead of like the Denzel heads because then you'd have to have another custom manifold built for a supercharger that doesn't exist for automotive stuff for that. So I'm, I'm deducing personally that since it was supercharged, it went with the dual port heads. And now if those are the actual heads that were on it when it ran, um, who knows? I mean, I would, I would think they might be, I mean, your guess is good. You would have a better knowledge of that than I would, but you know, the configuration where it's at, it's pretty similar to kind of the way that your dad ran that thing in the dragster, I'm thinking, based on talking to Joe Horvath, who would be the only guy that know, because the car, the motor ran the supercharger under Revmaster, and then when I was talking to Joe, he said, yeah, I told Lee, just keep keep the motor. When, when they finished campaigning the car, he was just like, yeah, you can keep that thing, and somehow, you know, things get passed around from here to there, or whatever the case is, but that's how your dad's had that, and that's the motor from the dragster. So, um, but as far as the history on that, you were you were much too young at that point to know a lot of the details of it because you're no, just. I was still there. I'd still go to all the races and help out. But Joe Harbeth had his own people, mm -hmm. you know. And after I left over there, he, I wasn't one of his people anymore. I had sure, Howard sure. Tactile and a bunch of guys over there, and you see him in the pit areas over there, in Orange County. Uh, no, I've always been around it because I always wanted to be there in case something happened pop, you know? Yeah, now some of the some of the motors and stuff like that, like the red car, what motor was in that red car? Was okay. that when, any, when any, he sold it, did he sell it with the motor in it? Yes. And what size motor? What's the best time the red car had? It ran 1060s with a 8492, set of Fumio heads, 48 Webers. I think it had a 205-10 Sigerson cam in it before Angle was even making hype high-performance cams, and that was a quiet run, late evening at Orange County, in the really good weather, and I remember the guy saying, holy smokes, he just ran a 1065 all by himself, and that was, that my dad, you heard that thing was quiet, bang, 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 four gears, yeah, eight grand every time, now they turn them 10,000. Oh, yeah, yeah, they, I mean, they, they, they can get those motors up to 8,500, 9,000 RPM pretty good, um, some guys even higher than that, uh, but uh, one thing that used to surprise people is we'd take that Volkswagen down to a $10,000 money bracket at Orange County. Yeah. And uh, he'd say, you want to go run a money bracket this weekend? I go, yeah, but the motor's blown up. He says, no. He goes, I want to pull that off-road motor down off the shelf. He goes, I'm not even going to match the ports. We're going to put 248 Webers on it, go down there and have a blast. And so you take an off-road motor, put some 48s on it, and you just go run bracket racing because well, you, for you could, yeah, you could cut a light, right? I mean, really, when it comes out of bracket racing, it's like you get your dial in, and then if you can hit your number, you can get the money, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. How, how many times you guys walk away from that being successful with that? With the ten grand? Yeah. There's 300 cars down there racing. We I don't, we never did. How close Think, did you get? Maybe third round. Yeah. The third round pays your entry fee back. That's about it, and. uh Hey, we just get getting away from getting away from Bloomington and going down to Orange County. That was the neatest yeah. racetrack, and you know, just to be around all those people all the time, 
It's a trip. Who are some of the people that influenced you, do you think, you know, as far as racing that you got to meet by being in the pits and all that stuff back when you were younger? Well, <clears throat> we grew up with a bunch of drag racers. Mm -hmm. One of them was Mr. Flathead. He had the fastest flathead dragster in the world, which runs like in the nines. Hell, I had a Plymouth that ran that fast with an automatic transmission. But we're talking about when we're little kids. Right. And uh, just seeing people on TV. You know, as I got older and got involved in off-road racing, people would wander into my dad's shop. I mean, Rick and Roger Mears came there more than four or five times looking to get the right motor and get the right gears. And usually when Rick left there, anything my dad told him, he would detest or talk to him about it. Oh, really? And be able to change his mind about something. No, Lee, we need this gear. We need that so we don't spin the tires all the time because I'm having too much trouble spinning the tires. Yeah. So he'd call Mike, and one thing led to another. So not only did we learn from Rick, we learned how to make our program better. I would put his cars together sometimes, and I would get to go out and test them. And my dad say, what do you think? I go, yeah, man, he's got this thing geared to go fast. Yeah. You know, and I said, doesn't like the tires every time he changed the gears. So I would learn from that. So, I mean, you start realizing, like, not only is it about speed, it's about traction, it's about reaction time. There's so much that goes into it just to just to get it and be able to go fast. You know what I mean? It's like football. Yeah. When you go to an off-road race, you better have 15 or 20 guys that can be where they're supposed to be with tires, with gas, and with tools, and sober. Yeah. I mean, we had a whole bunch of people in Riverside that race cars. Yeah, that's probably pretty key to be sober when you're over there pitting. Well, I mean, <laughs> on Alamo Street, you could get anything you wanted over there. There was machine shops. There was Fumio. Eric Harris raced all the time and everything else. And people are talking about taking the windows out of class 11 cars. And Eric's 5 1600 one time, we left the front windshield in it. It went 10 miles an hour faster. Really? Instead of all the air rushing through the car. Yeah. It had a bit of aerodynamics. Yeah, just going through there. So will you depart from off-road racing and move into what type of racing after that? I haven't, well, just some uh, bracket racing at Las Vegas Motor Speedway. And what kind of car are you bracket racing? I had a, a Dodge Demon, a 70. Yeah, and how fast did you get that car up uh, there? I run like 11 O's, usually 11 10, 118. Yeah. Run so, number two bracket all day long. Really? So you run, it, that car would be pretty consistent. So you couldn't break it. Yeah. Yeah, it was consistent. You just wring its neck all day and it just keep putting out the same the You don't same have to time. wring a 440's neck. You right, just, right. But a Volkswagen, really, so how come you don't bring a Volkswagen out here? Because every week I'd be changing the flywheel on the damn thing. You right, know? rebuilding it. Yeah. And you were more about seat time than you were about sitting there with a wrench in your hand, right? Oh, yeah, well, I'm working 60 hours a week hanging drywall for the union, you know. Yeah. I'd go out there to relieve myself on the weekends and it was like another world. Yeah. Sometimes round five would go off at four in the morning. Yeah, that's a, how many cars they have at the speedway well, that's that's up late racing well it messes up my weekend <laughs> yeah for sure for sure and now what uh now there's there's a lot of history that that took place that your dad was involved in and a lot of different things like that is there anything that you've heard that maybe you just wanted to clear the air on or just kind of set some things right where you've heard some things back and forth or anything that your dad did that he didn't get proper credit for that you'd like to clarify now since you've got an audience here to you know, straighten some things out. And who, who would know better than his boy, right? Well, yeah, there's a lot to be said there. I spent almost three years trying to get my dad in the Off-Road Motorsports Hall of Fame. Yeah. And some of the people that sent letters in there that I had talked to sent beautiful letters. Tom Spiel, uh, that guy, Jack Johnson's mom, I think. There was a whole bunch of people that I spoke. And you have to get a certain amount of 
notoriety in there to get him in the Off-Road Motorsports Hall of Fame. And I couldn't get him in there. And I had the RCO family. I had Jimmy Guthrie in there. I had uh, actually one of the other guys there, Bud Felkamp, good friends with my dad. Malcolm Smith told him he should have been in here years ago. Mm-hmm. Couldn't get him in. Now they're trying to get me in some kind of an archives book. I'm not interested. Yeah. I just texted Barbara back the other day. I said, if I can't get him on the wall in there, he doesn't yeah. belong in the book. Yeah. He belongs on the wall. Yeah. That's my thoughts. Now your dad, and you you feel that because of the amount of engines he built and produced for race cars and stuff like that in the off-road Oh, not necessarily. World. He helped tons of people. If you came in there and you missed a couple of days worth of work and everything, you couldn't get your motor out of there to go to Barstow, take it. We'll get it next week. You know, that's the way he was. I mean, he'd come in that shop, and I'd have to have talks with him. I said, you know, we, we, can't, we can't continue on like this because we need better stuff for our racing program. Right. You know? And he said, we're doing fine. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, well, that Off-Road Motorsports Hall of Fame, I wanted him in there, and they want me to give him another crack at it. And There's a lot of people that wanted to get in there that probably should be that aren't, yeah. you know? But uh, it, everybody – doing their own thing and i after three years i figured you know it's time for me to carry on you know i didn't really want to carry on the volkswagen legend because i just not into working on cars anymore at all now i i did want to mention that you've got some shirts that you made it's like a mount rushmore type shirt and it's got some figureheads on there that you believe pays homage to some of the founders of the vw racing world now who's on this shirt that you got designed well my dad's on the shirt Kenny Lowry's on the shirt next to him, and Gene Berg's on the shirt next to Dino because they all work together in the, in the day. Yeah, so all, all those guys all work together in the early days of drag racing, early days of VW racing. Right, and there's other people that probably, you know, were forefathers to that, but mm-hmm. those, those are my people. Those are people that built off-road motors together, and we tear them up. So you're saying – Dean and Ken Lowry, Gene Berg, and your old man. So you've got you've got a T-shirt that's got those on a like a Mount Rushmore type thing. Anybody wants to check those out or get one of those T-shirts? How do they get one of those? Uh, they can go to my email. Yeah, sixty nine terror fifty one at gmail dot com. So it's sixty nine terror t e r r o r at sixty nine terror fifty one at gmail dot com. If they want to get one of those, shoot you an email and you'll get them uh, set up with one yeah. of them shirts. They're brand new, uh, first class. Yeah, so it's kind of a Mount Rushmore shirt with some of the original VW racing legends that uh, that you got there that's available. Now, there is one thing that you did want to talk about for a few minutes on this in regards to your dad's health issues and maybe kind of bring a little bit of attention to something in regards to some prostate. Well, so. that's one reason I don't do any off-road racing anymore. Yeah. I mean, I had all three forms of treatment to get rid of my prostate cancer. My dad had a form way back in the day called peck reporting. We don't know a whole hell of a lot about what actually happened there. It cost $10,000, pretty much ate up that red Volkswagen that he had. My uncle had it. My little brother had it and didn't address it in time, and he's on uh, dialysis. And I don't want to make it sound like uh, it's not incurable. Right, but, but it's, 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 it's inherited. Yeah, People don't want to think it's inherited. I, I ran a class at uh, the Pahrump Hospital there until the pandemic hit. Once a month, we'd go there on Thursday. We'd get 15 guys sometimes. Sometimes we'd get 30 guys. Some people would leave halfway through the program because they don't want to hear what happens. And it prostate cancer is just like breast cancer. It can take your life if you don't take care of it. And so your thing with that is kind of get a little bit more education to people out there so they're a little more aware of 
of how to see preventative signs or catch it early on so that they can, because it's really, they say it's one of the most common cancers that men, like everybody's going to get prostate cancer. So you live long enough, you're going to get prostate cancer is what they say. That's kind of the layman's what I hear. You're, you're wanting to bring attention to people to have them be able to catch stuff early on before it becomes a bit of an issue. Right. That's going to be my next thing I was going to talk to you about. Yeah. For starters, I like to be able to have a situation where people could call in and ask me questions. Uh, I haven't been doing a whole hell of a lot of it lately because I've been wheeling houses and doing this and doing that. And the meetings have since gone from the hospital, which they don't want us over there at that room anymore, to a church that we we meet at. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of like it hadn't fallen to the wayside, but it's just something that I think about every night. Yeah. You know, I'm up using the restroom more than I'd like to, but I'm here. Yeah. I'm healthy. There's all kinds of things that can – I don't know how you prevent it. I don't know where it comes into – Attacking you. We have, I've, we've had people in our 40s, people in our 30s. Mm -hmm. People don't some get up until they're 80. You know, but it's going to sometime in your life come and get you. But you got to rely on your PSA test. If it gets to a certain point, then you got to get a Gleason score. And it just multiplies from there. Mm -hmm. And none of it's fun. Yeah. You know, I can't get in an off-road race car anymore and go beating around the desert, even if it rides like a Cadillac. I can't right. really jump into a swimming pool anymore because all the radiation – made changes to my midsection, and it doesn't like to be upside down. Right. It doesn't like to be jumping around. Your goal of trying to get, you know, because and I'm going to help you with that. I'm going to help you just kind of show you how to get up and set, get going to record some stuff and get out there and put some something together for you so that you can help people in the community as far as figuring out how to maybe get some early screenings for prostate cancer. So at least like when it's in the early stages, you can kind of get to it because something that's near and dear to your heart and you think your dad your dad's health was negatively impacted by his prostate cancer? Uh, yeah i mean that had a, a big a big to do with kind of the the overall health condition that you know it wasn't it was temporary it was 30 years ago nobody really knew how to attack it i mean they got all kinds of methods now you know the key thing is finding it out earlier finding it out earlier and if, we'll get all into all that stuff later on but we just barely touched base there's all kinds of things coming into my mind now about that red drag car places we used to go you know and i can't tell you how many times my dad and i have gone out three in the morning to pick up the funko because it's broken and jerry says i'll get it in the morning dad says no we're going out tonight to get it we went out there one night at barstow and found it the right rear wheel's gone we inch it up on the god darn trailer right and we get out there on a on a paved road to get into Barstow, and Pop says, man, the trailer fell off. The trailer <laughs> so fell off So we had to truck? go back and find the trailer and the race car, which is still tied to it, you know. Something, I, it's just things that, you know, you do with your dad that you don't normally do with dads, you know. Yeah. Some people played ball with their kids. I mean, we went racing. If there was a an eyesore, we had to go out and retrieve it, you know. So you got, so I mean, you're thankful for all the years you got to spend with your old man doing all oh, that stuff and, unbelievable. and kind of kicking around with him. And, uh, unbelievable. Yeah. It's definitely, it's, it's definitely a, a good bonding experience, you know, between a father and son to be able to spend that kind of time together and you get to see your dad, some of the most precarious situations, you know, from the standpoint of him being under a ton of pressure to, to how he kind of last minute sees things and get, and get some things figured out in regards to, uh, you know, getting some of these cars resolved, you know, getting them back on the road as quickly as you can. 
it was a relief for him to get away from my mother a lot of times for the weekend. <laughs> you know? She she hated off-road racing, yeah. hated every minute of it. But we had all three brothers raced, and she met my dad as a hot rodder out in Riverside. And him and Dad Gurney used to go on the Orange Groves and tear up other race cars for people. And, yeah, it's been good. I, yeah. I'd say Dan Gurney was a big factor in my life. Was he? Oh, yeah. he At Riverside, we would get in there when we were little kids. He'd pick me up one time, set me on the NASCAR, you know, and yeah. talking to my dad and everything. He just was a great big man, great big gentle giant. Yeah. And he had prostate cancer also. Did he? That's not what killed him, I don't think. I haven't done any research on that. You know, I don't know how we're, how deep we're going to get into prostate cancer, but... Uh, but, like, Dan Gurney, so you you personally knew Dan Gurney? Oh, yeah. And his, uh, your dad and your dad and him were friends? Yeah, they went to school together. Oh, really? Uh-huh. And he was from that area, right? Back uh, then, he yes, was. Yes, he was. He was from that whole orange, not was Riverside. He, Riverside. He was from the whole Riverside area, so he was kind of Riverside's claim to fame, huh? Well, and then Impy, they took him up on their shoulders and put him down in Mexico racing road races and all kinds of stuff in them old Volkswagens with the drum brakes. He didn't have no trouble stopping him because he had a great big foot, you know. So Dan Gurney was a was a was an influence on you too growing up, huh? Oh yeah, Seeing I got him. a picture of him with one of the little windows on my hat I had a picture of him on my fireplace. Mm-hmm. You know, that's yeah, I would say him and the mirrors guys. Uh, and then my grandfather used to be a welder for uh he would build horse trailers for uh that guy who runs top fuel dragsters out of Beaumont. Hemmings. Uh, I can't think of his name right now. Not Mickey Thompson. No, he grew he grew potatoes out there as a potato farmer. Yeah. He had top fuel dragster. And I've seen him once or twice over at my grandfather's place welding on his horse trailers. Fred, did your dad was good friends with Berg, Gene Berg, or no? They would talk, you know. And then when he when he left this earth, I mean, uh, my dad and uh, D, they they talked a lot on the phone. Mm-hmm. And I get along good with not Gary, and I don't see very much, but the one right below Gary, him and I have been buddies forever. Clyde. Clyde, yeah. You and Clyde. He started yelling at me a couple of years ago at the drag races out there at the Speedway. I'm in there walking around looking at a funny car, and he's he's work, he's putting half of a motor together on a funny car. And I'm looking, I go, he goes, it's me, it's Clyde. I'm going, damn, what are you doing out here? He's yeah. working on a top fuel funny car instead of a Volkswagen. You know? Really? And that was surprising. Yeah, I did an interview with Clyde. It's a good interview. We talk a lot about uh the history and, and what he's done in, in the uh, racing world in regards to, you know, being born into it like you, kind of born into the born into the family of racing. So, well, anything else that you want to touch on that we you don't think you think we didn't touch on enough or well, some you people know you want to give some learning, credit to? Learning to work on a car or mm-hmm. a Volkswagen or a truck or anything else and having that as a secondary job mm-hmm. or when drywall or construction slow and there's been times in california where you couldn't find a nail to drive right you know and then growing up i mean what just recently maybe two years ago i was at las vegas motor speedway mm-hmm. and chris caraman senis who's in his 80s ran over 300 in a top fuel dragster and i remember when i was a young kid at colton yeah he went 204 there and went off into the sand dunes and they couldn't make that a official record at over 200 miles an hour because they couldn't come back and repeat it. Yeah. And I'm seeing 50 years later, this guy's in his almost in his 90s yeah. running a top field dragster. I'm going, wow, this is something you could do forever, you know? Yeah, now, that, now that's the, they, he were, they referred to him as the Golden Greek, right? Yes, they did. And I think he was the first guy to run some kind of experimental fuel inside a car. Uh, last I remember, I remember hearing that he was running uh, – he had ran 
some sort of rocket fuel in uh, in a car that they outlawed pretty quick after because it was quite volatile. It would uh, it could it could grenade the motor if you let it sit in the <laughs> if you let it sit in the in the fuel tank for too long. But yeah, there's you know there's a there there's so much stuff from the racing world that's gone into you know because racers are so crazy they'll try anything to go a little bit faster you know and and guys are willing to push the limits and lighten cars beyond comprehension or offset front wheels for breaking the light beams and all i mean there's so many little tips and tricks and things that from the necessity of racing and and trying to get a little bit faster that have evolved into you know modern technology which is it it, it comes from there you know a lot of it comes from racing but in respect to uh in respect to your old man, do you feel he gets the credit he deserves in the VW world? I mean, he's pretty he's pretty well respected. You know, all his cars sure. have become valuable and collectible, and he's known as one of the you know the early guys in the drag racing world and kind of in that whole group of guys there. So, I mean, you'd like to see him a little more recognized in the off road world for what he did in respect to the off road scene. I I would I don't know how to answer that. All I know is I've watched him put motors together for years. I worked beside him for years and. There's nobody beats anything up any harder than Malcolm Smith. Mm -hmm. And they would go down there to the Baja 1000 and run that Funko with a gear ratio that's geared for about 90. And he'd bring it back. He goes, Lee, we need to go a little faster. And the oil, the the whole motor, that 2240 with Porsche rods in it, a Zenith on it, Fumio heads on it, wouldn't have a drop of oil on it anywhere. Yeah. And my dad called my little brother, and they called Al Kadrobi. And we find out that Malcolm's driving a car down there as hard as it'll go, and it's, t it's geared to go 90. And Mikey said, we need to change this gear ratio big time if he wants to go 110, 120. 90 nothing on a dirt road in Mexico. Right. You know, and for the motors to come back and, P and, and still P&G where they don't even need to but a valve job. And we would never send it back out like that again, especially the old them, guy, them kind of guys. Yeah. I mean, he's built motors for the answers. He's built motors for everybody. Really? And they don't usually come back because they got a somebody come and paid all the bills. They went somewhere and had some fun and then just throw that race car in the trash, you know, I'm thinking. Yeah. Because you don't never see them again. There's cars laying around different places that people are looking for. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Some, sometimes they get turned into things that you don't even know what they are. And then we come to find out that this was once a drag car and no one even knew what it was. So... Uh, it, there, there's a lot of history out there. And, and as I started the podcast a few years ago, I've, I really kind of embraced chasing down some of that history. So I appreciate you for coming out today and coming on the podcast and us having this little chat and hopefully, uh, I hope get you going on your own little podcast there for prostate cancer and doing what you do, looking out for other people, man. I appreciate that. Super. You got it, nice hey, meeting you. Good meeting you. You got a nice collection of stuff here. We <laughs> haven't just, even left yet. <laughs> I know it keeps getting bigger and it keeps getting bigger. I'm going to pick up another bus today. So. Uh, I don't know when a lot of ran, but I, I enjoy the heck out of it. That's for sure. Well, thanks for coming on, man. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. All right. Thanks, buddy. Give me a call. We'll do it again. You got it. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you share it with your friends. Click on the link down below. Copy and paste where you listen to this podcast and share it with all your VW friends. The bigger we grow, the better it is for everybody, and the more we can bring this cool VW knowledge to all those enthusiasts that you know around you. So to support Let's Talk Dubs, go to letstalkdubs.com, pick up some merch, and support your favorite podcast. We've got more podcasts coming up, lots more good podcasts coming up, guys. And sooner or later, we got to get a roundtable going because I know a lot of people have been asking for it, and uh, we got to sit down and hammer one out. So until next week, guys, later. You probably don't know that there's a new Volkswagen out that doesn't look like a Volkswagen. 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 Volkswagen.